0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And round the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Round the throne were twenty-four thrones. And seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And round the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all round and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives for ever and ever, The twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Amen, and may God bless to us that reading from his word. Shall we bow in prayer? This morning, as we study your word together, may it be our rule. May your spirit be our guide. And may your glory be our supreme aim. For Jesus' sake. Amen. A happy new year to you. I wonder how many times we've said that over the past few days. We want 2018 to turn out well for ourselves, our friends and our families. But we know that 2017, just like two th- 2018, just like 2017 and every other year, will present each of us with challenges as well as joys, with hard times as well as good times, with disappointments as well as surprises. We're well aware that life could be hard. They lived in what is now Western Turkey, around the end of the first century AD. They had to cope with the ordinary pressures of life. But they also faced persecution for their faith. That's made clear in the messages to seven churches, which are detailed in chapters 2 and 3 of the book. Take the Christians in Smyrna, modern-day Izmir, for example. We're told that many of them were poor. Many of them were finding it hard to make ends meet. They were being slandered for their faith. And they faced the imminent prospect of imprisonment and even death. This book of Revelation was written to reassure Christians like that that the Christian life was still worth living. And like them, we too need to know that living distinctively is worthwhile, however difficult it may be. We too need to know that when we wish each other a happy new year, we're not simply whistling in the dark. This book of Revelation consists of visions Which the Apostle John receives from the ascended Jesus. Here in chapter 4, the focus shifts from the, the present circumstances of the Christians for whom the book was originally written, it shifts from their circumstances to unseen heavenly realities. As Robin mentioned, chapters 4 and 5 go closely together. Here in chapter 4, we focus on the lordship of God in creation. In chapter 5, the, the emphasis is on the lordship of God in redemption. And that's what we'll be looking at this evening. Chapter 4 begins with the words, Chapter 4, after receiving the messages for the seven churches. Here we're given the heavenly perspective on the events to which the previous chapters refer. We call this world the real world. And of course it is real to us. But there is an ultimate reality which transcends our earthbound perspective. Think of a beautiful piece of embroidery. You look at it, the scene it depicts is perfectly clear, it's beautiful, the colours all glow, there's not a thread out of place. But if you turn the embroidery over, if you look at the underside, it looks a mess. On one side, there's beauty and order. On the other, an apparently meaningless tangle of threads, underside of the embroidery. But in chapter 4, we get the perspective of heaven and see beauty and order, meaning and purpose. Before we launch into John's vision, it, it's worth noting that John struggles to describe what he sees. Words fail him. His, his descriptions shouldn't be treated as a sort of photographic representation. He's not giving us a photo of what heaven is like. His descriptions are more like an impressionist painting. John is painting a picture Using words. The details may be unclear. But if we stand back and try to take in the broad brush strokes. We begin to see what the picture is about. In verse 1 of our passage John tells a privileged access to heaven through this open door. And then what does he see? Verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. You see what he's saying? The first thing John sees in heaven is a throne, and it's a throne that's occupied. We're given only the briefest description of the one who's seated on the throne. Verse 3 says that he had the appearance of Jasper and cornelian. That doesn't really tell us much beyond conveying something of his grandeur and majesty. But the focus of the chapter is nevertheless on him. So let's try to unpack what we're told under three main headings. The one who's seated on the throne is, one, a glorious king, two, a holy and eternal God, three, a worthy creator, eternal God, and three, a worthy creator. First of all, then, a glorious king. A throne is where a monarch sits on formal occasions, It represents the authority and sovereignty which he or she exercises. The throne in heaven which John sees makes the same point. It underlines the fact that there is a king in heaven. One who is in charge, one who is in control. The king's identity is revealed later in the chapter He is the Lord God Almighty. That's what verse 8 says. And our Lord and God, that's what verse 11 tells us. It's God who is on the throne. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is king. And he's a glorious king. As we've seen, John doesn't tell us much. The mention of precious stones, jasper, carnelian, and emerald... Hints of the splendour of his appearance. And the rainbow that's around the throne enhances the impression of splendour. But it may also point to something else. I think it was the the Bible scholar Alec Moutier who used to say, Bible words have Bible meanings. What he meant by that was that as we read the Bible, we should always ask ourselves How the same words are used elsewhere in Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. The rainbow is mentioned in Genesis chapter 9. Remember how, after the flood, which only Noah and the other occupants of the ark survived, God made a promise. He promised he would never again send a flood to destroy all living things. He said, when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant. And the waters shall never the flood had been a judgment on sinful humanity. But the rainbow would thereafter be a token of God's gracious promise. And so the rainbow around the throne may be intended to remind us that God exercises his kingly authority in the light of his covenant promises. He is an awesome God, but he's also merciful, and he keeps his promises. And that too is an aspect of his glory. Moving on, we read in verses 5 and 6. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of It's an echo of the account in Exodus chapter 19. When God came down on Mount Sinai to give the Israelites his law. After their escape from slavery in Egypt. On that occasion there were thunders and lightnings. And the mountain was wrapped in smoke. Because the Lord had descended in fire. The Israelites found The Mount Sinai experienced deeply unsettling. It was meant to be. And we are meant to be awed by John's description of the throne in heaven because the splendor of God's glory is in some respects terrifying. It's the same God who's presented in both the Old and the New Testaments. In the New Testament, there's a clearer focus on, on his grace and mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's still the same awesome God. Jesus speaks of the one, the the writer to the Hebrews describes God as a consuming fire and says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God the apostle paul pleads with men and women to be reconciled to god to make their peace with him because he knows the fear of the lord what makes it so urgent that we accept the invitation of the gospel is that sure judgment certain judgment awaits those who persist in defying this glorious king and perhaps those of us who are christians need to ask ourselves if we give God the reverence that is his due. Perhaps we need to fear him more. It would be no bad thing if that were one of our resolutions for 2018. There's something else that's also worth noting. In verse 6 we're told... Before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Perhaps it's John's attempt to describe the vast expanse, the vivid brilliance, the lucid purity of what he sees. John sees in heaven a glorious throne with a glorious occupant. The Christians for whom John originally wrote this book, needed to hear that. They were facing all kinds of difficulties and problems. At times it must have seemed as if things were spiraling out of control. They needed to be reminded that there was a throne in heaven, that God was king no one and nothing had wrested ultimate control from him. True, there was a cosmic battle going on between Christ and his church on the one hand and Satan and his minions on the other. But the outcome was not in doubt. The struggle wasn't between two equal and opposite forces. He was a defeated foe. He would never have the upper hand. His kingdom had been dealt a mortal blow by Christ's death on the cross. Revelation is in many ways a complicated book, but its message can be summed up in two words. Jesus wins. Is that a message you and I need to hear this morning? The throne of the universe is securely occupied. God is king. That's why as Christians we can remain confident in the face of political instability and economic uncertainty. That's why we can remain confident in the face of the problems which confront us personally. God is sovereign over Brexit, sovereign over Donald Trump, sovereign over Kim Jong-il and he's sovereign over illness over relationship difficulties, over financial hardship. God is still on the throne and he will remember his own. Though trials may press us and burdens distress us, he never will leave us alone. God is still on the throne and he will remember his own. His promise is true. He will not forget you. God is still on the throne. That's good news for those who recognize God as king. We can be sure that everything from the future of the universe to the details of our own tiny lives are under his control. But it's not good news For those who refuse to give God the allegiance of their hearts. We may shake our puny fists in God's face. But we can no more unsettle his promises or evade his judgment. God is our glorious king. Secondly, John's vision presents us with a holy and eternal God. A holy and eternal God. Verse 6 introduces us to four living creatures. This is what it says. Around the throne and each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Verse 7 adds that each of the four living creatures has six wings and is full of eyes around and within. Now we need to remind ourselves that we're dealing here with picture language. The four living creatures probably represent angelic beings. The features which are described echo those of cherubim and seraphim. Angels are part of God's created order. They are creatures, but they have a special role as God's messengers and attendants. The reference to their being full of eyes around and within probably points to their forever looking this way and that way in order to be constantly ready to do God's business, the bidding. The four living creatures worship God ceaselessly. Verse 8. Day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They give God glory and honor and thanks. These angels have never rebelled against God, unlike Satan and his followers. They're angels who've never sinned and who have no perch they were created, and their delight is to worship God and give Him glory. What do they praise God for in particular? Two things one, His holiness, and two, His eternity. They chant, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Some Bible scholars suggest that the threefold holy alludes to the trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The one God is in three persons, and each of the three persons is equally holy. But it's more likely that the repetition of holy simply intensifies the description. The threefold holy echoes what the seraphim call out in Isaiah's vision of God in chapter 6 of his prophecy. They call out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The Hebrew equivalent of our English superlative, in English, we say holy, holier, holiest. In Hebrew, it's holy, 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 holy. So, what the four living creatures are trying to express is the intensity of God's holiness. He is most holy. At the heart of what the Bible means by holiness is the idea of separateness. Holy is the Bible word for all that makes God different from us. He is holy, other. In particular, his holiness is his complete and utter separation from all that's sinful and morally impure. The sinless angels appreciate the beauty of God's holiness and they praise him for it. So where does that leave us? In all our sinfulness and moral failure, even at our best, we know our lives are indefensible. Thank God that he has provided a way for sinners like us To be made right with him. Through Christ's death on the cross. Our sins can be forgiven. And we can be justified. And the Holy Spirit can begin the process. Of changing us from the inside out. He gives us a growing appreciation of holiness. And a growing desire for it. That's something we'll hear much more about this evening. As as Derek preaches on chapter 5. The four living creatures praise God for his holiness, but they also praise him because he's eternal. They acknowledge that he was and is and is to come. There never was a time when he did not exist. Because he's eternal, there will never be a time he's eternal he will not exist. And because he's eternal, he doesn't change He's eternally the same. That means he is utterly reliable. He doesn't change like shifting shadows. The emphasis on God's eternity underlines the fact that creation, including all the worshippers round the throne, is not eternal. That's a basic distinction between God and everything and everyone else. He is the everlasting God. In the words of Moses in Psalm 90, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The angels in heaven See God's holiness and eternity as praiseworthy. Do you? Do I? Thirdly and finally, John presents us with a worthy Creator. A worthy Creator. Verse 4 introduces us to 24 elders who sit on thrones surrounding God's throne. Who are these elders? Or rather, whom do they represent? Most likely, they represent the totality of God's people, embracing both the Old Covenant and the New. 24 is 2 times 12. 12 of the elders represent the heads of Israel's 12 tribes in the Old Testament. While the other twelve represent the twelve apostles who founded the New Testament church. On that basis, the twenty-four elders represent the whole of redeemed humanity. John tells us in verses nine to eleven that whenever the four living fall down before him and worship too, they cast their crowns before him, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The focus of the elders' praise is the God who created all things and who sustains all things. It was by God's will everything was made in the first place and it is by his will that everything continues to exist. He is the focal point of creation. He made it, he sustains it. It is fundamentally all about him. Now let's think about that for a moment because that is so counterintuitive for us. We are by nature self-centered. Because of sin, we are turned in on ourselves. We see ourselves as the center of our universe. End of men and women was meant to be to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what we were made for. And that's what heaven is like. The 24 elders gladly recognize God's authority as they cast their crowns before him. They themselves are given authority. That's what their crowns represent. But they fulfill the work God has given them to do. Not for their own selfish fulfillment, but for God's glory. They find their fulfillment in doing his will in being completely aligned to his purposes. And there's no room for any divergence. That's why, if we are to share in the worship of heaven, we need to start now to give God the place in our lives which he demands and deserves, is our worthy creator. There's a throne in heaven. And it's occupied. It's occupied by a glorious king, a holy and eternal God, a worthy creator. We can go into 2018 with confidence if we know this great God. We can rest assured that the future unknown as yet to us, is known to him and is under his control. And this year we can ask for his help to love and fear him more, to do his will and to begin to live more for his glory. Shall we pray? You, as our King, help us to live in your fear. Help us to give you the reverence that is your due. Help us to do your will and to live more and more for the glory of the One who created all things and in whom we live and move. And have our being. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.